You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Listening to Dr. Rob White with the AULC Ministries. Scan the QR code to visit our website at AULC.us and find us on Roku, Amazon Fire TV, and TalkShoe. The following presentation is from a new series from Dr. Rob White called Blast from the Past. In this series, Dr. Rob will feature past sermons that were recorded live. We hope you enjoy this new series. Let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come this morning, we opening your word once again, getting a lesson once again of what you have to show us, what you have to tell us. As we are going through this season of Lent, which is what we call it, things that we need to know, things that we have to do to prepare for the day of your death and your resurrection, resurrection, and just be with us, Lord, and let us always keep in mind that this just doesn't happen one day a year, that it happens every day for us and that we have to constantly remember that. We have to constantly go back to your word as a, a guide uh, just to know an instruction book, what to do. And we just ask that you give us those instructions today. Give us that guidance. Be with us each and every one. We ask this in your son Jesus' precious name. Amen. Our gospel lesson today comes from Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 38. Then he began to preach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priest, and the scribes, and be killed and rise after three days. He was openly talking about this, so Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. Summoning the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to be my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose his life? What can a man give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes into the glory of his Father with the holy angels. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now, many of our churches, especially growing up, 
had a blessing in itself. They had stained glass windows. And we all admire the stained glass windows because very, very often you look at one window and it tells the story of Jesus, one part of his life or another. And these windows come to life for you the more that you look at them. I was watching a, a documentary the other night and uh, a guy was just staring there was like five or six stained glass windows and he was just staring at one and the person asked him says well which one are you staring at and it was the one where jesus is praying in the garden of gethsemane and the the light coming down on him and all he says that just speaks to me every time i look at that it speaks to me and these stained glass windows will do that now a lot of our churches today don't have stained glass windows, our modern buildings, our modern facilities. They have something that looks like stained glass windows, but it's just colored glass. It's not the same thing. When I preached at Wesley Chapel, the building was over 100 years old. The stained glass windows was also over 100 years old, and they were beautiful. And at the bottom of each window commemorated a family or a person that had been a member there and had passed away and they was forever engraved in glass. And they, we took great care because these windows were starting to deteriorate a little bit. So we put special plastic on the outside and all to help prepare these windows to away from the storms and all that because the slightest touch, they could just crumble. But they're so beautiful. We don't get that today but back when we were children and like that we did when the sun would come through and it would just light up different colors in the church and it would just make your heart melt sometimes and when you look at a stained glass window it's all made up of teeny tiny little pieces of glass different colors and the artistry just think of you know what that takes to do that I don't have that kind of handiwork in me. I can't do that. God did not bless me with that. But I have to admire the people that do it, that can that have a steady hand and can do that. Working with glass is not only difficult, but it's dangerous too, because when you're working with glass, you've got to wear eye protection and face protection and hand protection and all because if a, a glass breaks or blows up or whatever, shards go everywhere. And you know what happens, how, how much it hurts when you get a little splinter, a wood splinter. Well, just think about a glass splinter. That's even worse. But the small pieces of glass have to be cut just right. And sometimes, even though you're very careful, the glass will break and you've got to start over again. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is about to do a difficult thing. No, he's not working with glass, but he's working with himself because he's getting ready to die. And he says, whoever wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus warns us that following him is going to be a heavy load. We'll have to carry a huge cross everywhere we go when we're going to follow Jesus. Even though you choose to follow Jesus, there may be times in your life that's difficult. 
things that you have trouble handling and you can't do it by yourself. Even if you're trying to make the right choices and it doesn't feel right. You might get discouraged or others might make fun of you or you might think this is just too hard. I can't do this. It's not worth the effort. In much the same way that a stained glass window is beautiful and inspiring, your life too can be beautiful and inspiring to others when you're showing them God's love. Just like light comes through the stained glass windows, the light of God's love comes through you and will shine on others so they can see God the way you see God. Now our lesson today is bracketed by the story of Jesus healing a blind man at Bethsaida and then another blind man, Bar Bar Bartimaeus, at Jericho. Now during this period, Jesus is struggling with his disciples, trying to explain to them several times he has to go and die. And the disciples, they're not really too blind to see it. They're a little too close to see it. And they don't want to believe it. They think that Jesus is going to be around forever and he's going to have this earthly kingdom. He's going to kick out the Romans and everything's going to be just hunky-dory. But he's trying to teach them the truth. He says, having eyes, don't you see? Having ears, don't you hear? Don't you understand yet what I'm trying to tell you? Now, in his great confession, Peter shows that he caught a glimpse of the truth, just slightly sees what's going on. He reveals that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. When Jesus speaks to his disciples, he calls out to the crowd to join the disciples in hearing what it takes to be a disciple. Now, even though the disciples are already there, part of his group, he knows others are going to want to follow him. So he's talking not only to the disciples, but to the crowd too, saying this is what it takes to be a disciple. This is the first of three occasions where Jesus will predict his suffering and his death. On all three occasions, the disciples demonstrate their lack of understanding. They show that they just don't get it. Now, longtime churchgoers, when we read this gospel lesson today, it's so familiar because we've heard it time and time and time again. It's so familiar that a lot of times we let it go in one ear and out the other and we start daydreaming a little bit because yeah yeah I've heard this story and we're tempted to just kind of zone out and let the preacher talk and the we don't realize the story can change our lives it can transform us and but it requires that we really hear what Jesus is saying and we struggle sometimes with the difficult things that Jesus tells us. So I invite you to listen carefully this morning and listen to what Jesus says in our text. Listen to determine what it means for your life. Listen so that Jesus might turn your life in a different direction. Maybe that's what you need. Listen for a word from God aimed directly at your heart. Now to understand this story, we must first understand just what's happened. Peter just proclaimed that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Messiah, the son of the living God, and the one that Israel has been waiting for for hundreds of years to come. The one who will actually save Israel. 
Now, this is the turning point in the Gospel of Mark here. Now, prior to that, Jesus taught and he healed. That's all he did in his ministry. After that, when he starts his journey to Jerusalem, his journey to the cross, he's going to die and he knows that. So he knows his ministry as he is doing it is coming to an end. Peter's confession was the hinge here. It was the turning point of the whole story. Now, Peter so often got it wrong, but this time he hit it direct on the head. He got it right. Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God, the one who will save Israel. But what happens next? What happens next is Jesus begins to teach his disciples what it means that he is the Messiah. He begins to teach them that for him to be the Messiah, he must suffer and he must die. Now the disciples have sacrificed a great deal already just to follow Jesus. Jesus' ministry lasted just three years, but right off of the get-go, they had to give up things. And they thought at first this wasn't worth it, but now they're seeing after three years that it's paying off. If Jesus is doing everything he said he was going to do, and it's working for them. And they've seen Jesus do miraculous things, wonder after wonder, healing after healing. The crowds were responding nicely to what Jesus was doing, and the disciples can see great possibilities ahead, and they cannot welcome anything else that suggests that this will not continue. It sounds to them that they're being a little bit nice to Jesus, but to others, it sounds like they're being critical. And they won't, they won't listen to Jesus when he says he's got to die. They refuse to listen to it. It sounds like he's just having a bad day. I'm just, I'm having a bad hair day and I just can't do this. I've got a headache. I, I just need some encouragement, whatever. Even today, having known all of our lives how the story turns out, we prefer a gospel or a lesson that promises success. We don't want to hear the bad stuff. We want to hear the good stuff. The cross has always been a hard sell for Christians. Ever since the first century, it will always be a hard sell. But listen to what Peter does next. He takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. He starts getting on him a little bit and, and, and slapping his hand and going, no, this isn't right. Peter just said Jesus is the Messiah. So he takes the Messiah aside and starts telling him he's wrong. You know, that's kind of like going up to your boss who's been doing his job for 20 years and you've been doing it for a week and you're going, no, you're doing it all wrong. You don't know what you're doing. Mark doesn't tell us exactly what Peter says here, but it isn't hard to imagine that what Peter said probably didn't come out the way that he thought it in his head because he did tend to get things wrong. He probably said something like, Jesus all this suffering and talking about dying and all this, it's not what we want to hear. You don't want to do that. You got to talk about something nicer. It's all crazy. So pull yourself together here. You are the Messiah. You can do this. You got this. Now start acting like a Messiah. Start acting like you should. Tell us about the good things you're going to do. Tell us about the good things that's going to happen to us. Let's don't have any more of this talk about suffering and dying. It's not going to work. 
Now, it seems a little odd that Peter would confess his faith in Jesus as being the Messiah and then turn right around and criticize Jesus for what he's doing and how he's doing it. At least it seems odd to me. But perhaps it's not because Peter had been seeing Jesus heal people and work great miracles for three years now. And he heard his teaching and his teaching was so profound it could only come from God. It couldn't come from any other source. And we should not be surprised that he was having trouble coming to grips with this idea that the Messiah has to suffer and die. But to be honest, we've heard the rest of the story thousands of times. The story of Jesus' death and his resurrection. And sometimes we still don't get it. We still don't understand. And like Peter we expect certain things from Jesus because of the person he is. And sometimes it's very different than what we expect. It happens in every generation of Christians because Christ says things we don't want to hear. For instance, let's look how Jesus responded to Peter's criticism here. First, he says in verse 33 of our text today, Get behind me, Satan, for you have in mind not the things of God, but the things of men. Jesus was trying to show the disciples the world from a God's eye view, looking down on the world. But the disciples were used to seeing it from a worm's eye view, looking up and trying to discern what's going on. It was kind of like trying to explain electricity to someone in the 1800s and how a light bulb works or how you turn on a switch and you can light up a room. It'd be like showing them a cell phone and say, I've got all the answers from the internet in my hand. And they'd go, huh? I don't understand. This is kind of what the disciples were doing. The light bulb couldn't go off for them because they didn't have electricity yet. But it'd be like trying to explain a radio show or a TV movie to someone that had never heard radio, or never seen TV. You just can't explain how electricity works because we don't understand it, but someone that's never seen it before is definitely not going to understand it. It's not easy. Now, I went through a science class many years ago, and I didn't find it easy at that time to understand electricity then. Now, many, many years later, I still don't find it easy to explain. I've seen thousands of light bulbs, but... The electricity every day doesn't just run lights. It also runs refrigerators and phones and cell phones and TVs and radios and computers and thousands of other things. And how do you explain that to someone? I know what electricity can do. I can't tell you how it works. I can't explain that to you. I had an engineering friend of mine tried to explain it to me one day. He's talking this far over my head, and I still didn't understand it. In his mind, it was perfectly simple. Not to me. Jesus was trying to explain something that was even more mysterious than electricity. He was trying to explain how things look from God's point of view. When God looks down on us, he's trying to tell the disciples that the Messiah has to suffer and die. He was trying to tell them that they too would have to suffer and die. And this didn't set well with them. They just didn't get it. But who can blame them? 
This is a hard thing to understand. Once again, I, I remind you, I'm familiar with, of course, Paul Harvey. I quote him quite a lot, you know, because now here's the rest of the story. And the part about Jesus dying and being raised from the dead, very often we fail to connect the dots here. We fail to recognize what this means for us. Let me give you a few examples here. A number of years ago when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, a reporter interviewed a Princeton student for her opinion on the possible American intervention. The student replied, it's not worth dying for. That was her whole summation of this invasion. It's just not worth dying for. Don't be distracted by the military context of that statement, because there is none, but let's look at the student's word. It's not worth dying for. Now, is that what you think? Lots of people would think that Jesus, when he says he's got to suffer and die, everything he's doing is not worth dying for. But Jesus says, whoever wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever will lose his life for my sake and the sake of the good news will save it. Now that's quite different from it's not worth dying for, isn't it? When Mark wrote this gospel, he and his friends knew what it meant for Christians to actually take up a cross and follow Jesus. Rome was persecuting Christians at the time, and the first readers of Mark's gospel would have known that Christians were dying for their faith. They would know they would be in danger of themselves once they became Christians. They believed that Jesus would accomplish something through his death, but he could not have accomplished it any other way. And they knew that they might find themselves in a situation where they would have to choose between Christ and choose between death. They understood the cost of discipleship. Discipleship involves self-denial and cross-bearing. And at the time when this, cross, this, this gospel was written, Christians were literally bearing crosses because Romans was putting Christians up on crosses, much like they did Jesus, but they would hang there with ropes, not nails, and they could hang for days until they died because they would suffer and they would die on a cross. They knew what it meant to carry that cross to a hill somewhere to be mounted on that. They weren't doing this because this was something they liked to do. They were doing this because they were made to do it. They knew they had to bear their cross. They were purposeful believers when it came to sacrifices, and they knew they were feeding the growth of God's kingdom when they did this. Now, sports provides an analogy here. Games are won, but not just on the playing field, also on the practice field too. To experience glory on the, same, on the game day, the athlete must first push himself or herself to the limit on a practice field. You've got to practice, practice, practice. Physical condition and conditioning is painful. It's practicing fundamentals. It's tiresome. But the purpose of this discipline is neither pain nor boredom, but it's to win. It's victory. So this is with the spiritual realm as well. Spiritual discipline begins with pain and suffering, but in the end, it comes up with spiritual victory. The church is always tempted to offer less costly discipleship in the hope of attracting more people in. 
A weak call, however, but that produces weak disciplines and disciples. A church may win people by disguising the true meaning of discipleship, but it cannot do anything with them after it gets them, one Christian scholar said. The challenge to lose our lives for Jesus' sake conflicts with our modern values. Preservation of life is a major industry today. Modern medicine, proper diet, exercise, all this stuff comes together and extends our lives. Cosmetics and plastic surgery preserves our appearance. Funeral directors continue to work on us even after we die so that we can look really good going into the ground. They want us to look natural. Those values make it difficult for us to hear Jesus call to lose our lives for his sake. When this gospel was first written, Christians were literally in danger of losing their lives for their faith. They were tempted to deny Christ to save their lives. And that's true for many Christians today. Persecution of Christians is alive and well today, just like it was in the first century. More Christians died for their faith in the 20th century than they ever did in the first century. The list of nations where Christians are routinely persecuted is a long one. China, North Korea, Laos, Vietnam, Indonesia, East Timor, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Egypt, Sudan, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Cuba, just to name a few. There's a lot of places in this world where Christianity is not allowed. The challenge that most of us face kind of seems trivial to this martyrdom. Workplaces are inhospitable to Christian witnesses. I work for the state of Indiana, and you can't talk about your religion. You can't talk about your church or your faith openly with your coworkers because it's policy. You can't do that. I had a supervisor years ago that purposely put a Bible on his desk and he was told many times to remove it. He says, it's not hurting anything sitting there. But it was a conversation starter when people found out that I was a pastor. That was a conversation starter because there was an article that came out in the paper about when I got the pulpit at Wesley Chapel. And I walked in one day and everyone had copies of the newspaper with my article up. And they said, we didn't know you were a pastor. Well, I'm not allowed to talk about it. But workplaces are that away. Coaches will now schedule things on Sunday mornings for kids so they can't go to church. You either come to the game or you go to church, but you don't come back again. You're not going to be allowed to play if you don't come on Sunday morning. They force young people to choose between sports and Jesus. People label Christians as fanatics or bigots for belief that run counter to our prevailing culture. These are serious and painful issues, but nevertheless, they fall short of the kind of persecution that Christians endured throughout the centuries. And they're still enduring today in many parts of the world. That's why Jesus says, whoever wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Peter, at this point, had not seen the open tomb. He had not got it. He didn't understand. They wouldn't understand until after the resurrection. Jesus announced that he would have to suffer and die. Peter takes him aside and rebukes him because Peter didn't get it. 
And I can't say I blame him because all too often we don't get it either. We just don't understand. Just listen to some of the, the things that we say. We say we look out for number one. It's another way of saying loving yourself. Take care of yourself. Jesus says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He calls us for an agape kind of love. The kind of love that God has for people. The kind of love that a mother has for a child. The kind of love that takes care of a beloved one. The kind of love that takes care of more about the person you're taking care of than yourself. It's quite different from looking out for number one, isn't it? In fact, Jesus goes on further. He says, you have heard that it is said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who mistreat you and persecute you. See that in Matthew 5. That's especially different from looking out for number one. Another example, we say, if I don't take care of myself, nobody else will. But Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious for your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or what you'll wear on your body. It isn't life more than just food or the body more than clothing. You see the birds of the sky, they don't sow, neither do they reap nor gather into barns. Your heavenly father feeds them. Aren't you much more of value than they are? A different take on if I don't take care of myself, nobody else will. What's my point here? Well, my point is simply that it's hard for Peter to understand Jesus because Jesus is showing him something that is more mysterious than electricity. He's showing him how things work in the kingdom of God. He's asking Peter to shift from his worm's eye view to a God's eye view. And my point is that we often find it difficult to understand Jesus too because we want to tame Jesus. We want to bring him down a little bit and make him smaller, but we want to stay the same. We want Jesus to fit into our world not for us to fit him into our world. We want to domesticate him. We want to make him harmless like a lap dog. We want to look to Jesus for easy solutions for all of our problems. And to, we want to believe that if we believe in Jesus, we're going to get rich. Jesus responds by saying, get behind me, Satan, for you have in mind not the things of God, but the things of men. The good news is though, there are lots of people that do get it. They do try to live as Christ would have them live. I see Christians paying their own way on mission trips to help needy people in foreign countries. I read about Christians who've given up the comforts of their home to go to foreign lands where they live uncomfortable lives, oftentimes dangerous lives, to help people and to proclaim the gospel. I see in many denominations here uh, whether it's Baptist or Methodist or whatever, they are doing good things. Some of the churches can't afford to even keep their doors open, but yet they give to other charitable organizations to help out because they know that's the right thing to do. They're not looking out for themselves. They're looking out for other people. I see people who give sacrificially of their time and their money to keep their churches going, to keep their witness in Christ alive in our community and to help our children grow up in faith. These are the kind of selfless ministries which Christ calls us to. 
Jesus tells us, whoever wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever will lose his life for my sake and the sake of the good news will save it. We see that and we know it's true because that is the word of God. And that is also our, our Lord's message for this Lord's day. And I hope that you got a blessing out of it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Words indeed that we can live by and words that we need to hear because so many times, Lord, we don't understand. We don't understand and we'll just look the other way or, or we'll say, well, somebody will explain it one day or maybe one day I'll understand. And we just ask, Lord, that you help us to get a grip on this today, to help us to understand, to help us to see. We know what the end of the story is. We know how the story ends. And Lord, we just ask that you help to remind us that each and every day. We ask this in your son Jesus' precious name. Amen. Go out this week, be a blessing and be blessed because the more you're a blessing, the more you will be blessed. Thank you all for coming. We'll see you all next week. Thank you. Well, appreciate it. Thank you for watching and listening to Dr. Rob White with the AULC Ministries. Athens Universal Life Church is a not-for-profit 501c3 organization. This production is an AULC Studios video production. Copyright 2012-2023. All rights reserved.